Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is Charlotte Mullins, a former editor of Art Review, V&A Magazine and Art Quarterly. Charlotte is also a writer and broadcaster and has written a dozen books on visual art. Her latest is A Little History of Art, a comprehensive and thrilling journey through 100,000 years of art, from the first artworks ever made to the role art plays in our contemporary cultures. Charlotte Mullins, welcome to Monica Reads. Thank you. What is art? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> it's meant so many different things to different people over the 100,000 years that this book incorporates. For me, it's something that goes beyond words. It's something that has its own magic, its own power. I mean, it's hard to believe, but the, the art of the cave painters and sculptors it stretches back tens of thousands of years before writing was even invented. So we, we have to see it as a kind of language. And that's why it can speak to us sort of directly to our emotions. So when I was writing the book, the thing I was looking for was something that connected. And art has that amazing ability to connect beyond when it was made. Mm. Why do we need it now? <laughs> I think we need it now more than ever before, actually. I think art has this power to change how we see the world. In a way, it's very like science. So scientists go out and explore how the world is made. And artists look at how we interpret the world. And I think that helps us to understand our place in the world a little bit more. And, you know, it has this incredible power to it to actually affect change. Mm. Do you think the definition of art then has changed through the years? I think... Things we now call art perhaps weren't seen as art when they were first made, so we have no idea how the art in those prehistoric caves were seen. We can only interpret them ourselves, and we call them art because they have this power to move us. So, yes, there is a rolling definition. You know, Was it commissioned by ancient Assyrian leaders to decorate their palaces? Is that the same as an artist working today in a studio? No. But, again... The work that they leave behind has this power. It, it's not decorative. It's not something that's useful. It stands in a different place, in, in this place, a kind of place of slippage almost, to, mm. to help us just interpret the world that bit differently. I was at an exhibition last night in Dalston, and I was really struck by what we define as art, because on, on the one hand you had these very traditional kind of figurative paintings on the wall, then you had a whole load of collages, there were some maquettes and clay, and then in the final room there was extraordinary art of a woman who, who takes photographs of herself, but very kind of disturbing pictures, manipulates them digitally, and is basically this kind of big Instagram star. And you, the difference between that and the kind of figurative landscapes was extraordinary. Yeah, and I think the definition art really closed down probably after classical art and renaissance art there was a much tighter definition on what was art and a lot of the artists I've tried to put back in this book suffered from that definition you know art by white male western artists who did painting and sculpture now art can literally be anything the cast of the whole inside of a house a giant building site filled with chairs photography video you name it it can be art it's about how we how it connects with us I think as the viewer and how it's presented to us. But I don't think it's a bad thing that it's expanded. I think it's it's incredibly exciting time to be looking at art. No, absolutely. I mean, in this book, I mean, you in sort of just over 300 pages, you get in 100,000 years of art. Uh, the book actually, though, owes a debt to an earlier work. Tell us about that. Well, it is a book in a series. So the series is The Little Histories. And The Little History series came about because Ernst Gombrich wrote A Little History of the World 
in the 1930s. So he was only 26 when he wrote it. I think he dashed it off in a matter of weeks. And it's still a great read. I read it to my own children. And the Yale University Press, who now publish The Little Histories, decided to make a series out of these because they're books that anyone can pick up. So you need no knowledge of art to pick this book up. You need a little curiosity uh, and a little openness to what I'm going to show you. But the series is designed for people with no knowledge of this subject. So there's no jargon, there's no footnotes. It's there to access. For me, with this series, it was slightly different because Ernst Gombrich, we know in Britain as probably our most famous art historian of the 20th century. So these were giant boots I felt I was filling because... 70 years ago, he wrote The Story of Art, which is probably the best-selling book on art ever written, certainly in the UK, but sold worldwide in multiple translations. For me with that book, the difficulty with it is that he did limit what he considered art. So in the whole book, and there's maybe 700 pages, there's one woman artist, Cathy Colwitz. He did say, you know, he didn't see women as great artists. Now, of course, that's totally preposterous. And there's been some brilliant research on great women artists of the last 50 years. What I wanted to do was I didn't want to write a book just about women artists or about non-Western artists who also I've put back in. I wanted to bring these artists into the story of art, like Gombrich had told, but show that they deserve to be there all along. Mm. Because these were women who fought to be accepted into all male art academies or were buried with the same honours as the leading men, male artists of the day or worked for the kings of England or Spain, the leading patrons of Europe. And I wanted them to have their place back in history mm. because mm. it had been denied them. I can see why Gombrich did it because, my goodness, it's hard putting them back in and it overcomplicates what's already a difficult narrative. But, you know, they absolutely needed to be there. And if it makes a more complex, more challenging narrative, then that's up to me to navigate that for you yeah. as a reader. You shouldn't leave people out just to make it simpler for you as a writer. Absolutely. Now, the structure of the book is that there's a, a beautiful original lithograph at the beginning of every chapter. And then there's a kind of little vignette, if you like, of, of a piece of, of work. And I just wanted to start at the very beginning about the first art, because you, you explore that first journey into a cave by a teenager who makes a couple of people who make these extraordinary statues, I suppose they are. Yeah, relief sculptures. They're bison on a rock. They're about the length of an arm. It was really important to me as thinking of the reader, to make art as exciting as possible. And I think sometimes we go to galleries and we look at it behind glass or behind barriers and it can be a bit off-putting. So I wanted to take the reader back to when art was really first made. So the very first chapter, of course, we go back in time, we go back 17,000 years and walk through a dark uh, passageway in a cave, half a kilometre into the cave and we, I hope we feel the uh, weight of the clay that these two artists, we don't know if they were male or female, we know one was a teenager and one was an adult because of the weight in the heels, we have the heel prints still left in the cave, which I find incredible. <laughs> and then they took this clay and made these sculptures. I mean, imagine half a kilometre into a cave with only a burning torch for light. And, you know, it must have been incredibly exhilarating, terrifying. So I really wanted to build that atmosphere to show that right from the very beginning, 
art has been made in not necessarily the easiest circumstances, but we can go back there and experience it for ourselves. Mm, so interesting. Art and politics. You've mentioned kings and queens, and quite often art was commissioned by somebody, but it would have been for a political reason. Political propaganda reasons. There's lots of art that was propaganda. I mean, some of the earliest works I cover um, were from Ashburnipal's palace in Assyria, and they show him catching lions. Now, these lions were had already been caught. They'd been caught in cages <laughs> and then let out for him to hunt and kill. And this incredible panelled works, um, now in the British Museum, show him killing lions repeatedly. So this is, you know, they, they were designed to be in the corridors towards, you'd walk down towards him. So you'd start to fear him more than the lions. I mean, he's killing something that's terrifying, but so then if he can kill the beast, he mm. really is in control. So yes, art has always been, had that role. Um, Henry VIII commissioning Holbein or a fantastic female miniature painter, Susanna Horenbott, who probably was responsible for the image we know of Henry VIII, that very big, broad-shouldered, very confident man. Art has always had that power. I think what's interesting in maybe the last 200 years is that artists have reclaimed that power for themselves. Even further back, maybe, William Hogarth is a good early example, a British artist who we know for his paintings, but at the time he was really famous for his prints. And he, along with the novelist Henry Fielding, they campaigned to have the gin laws changed in, in England in the um, 18th century because the working class were just... It was a gin epidemic. And he made these two coruscating prints called Gin Lane and Beer Street, showing the joys of drinking beer and the whole city was working beautifully and the destruction of gin with everyone dying and only the pawnbroker making, making money. And now today, I mean, an artist like Ai Weiwei, for example, in exile because of his art, I think we just see how that power has actually been wrested back by the artist. Yeah, absolutely. Now, earlier you mentioned women artists and the fact that there was only one in, in the <laughs> original book. Obviously, there have been many, many more. In your opinion, who have been the most important women artists over the last sort of 500 years or so? Well, I think there's a standout artist and I think it was seeing her work. She's called Artemisa Gentileschi. She's very well known now. And I think seeing her work made me realise that women artists, we don't need to put them in as, as being as good as men. She actually was better than most of the male artists, maybe all the male artists of her generation, so early 17th, mid-17th century. She took on Caravaggio, who is an artist, perhaps we know his name better, and she painted a subject he'd done, Judith beheading Holofernes. But she put the power into the... When Caravaggio painted it, this general who's killed by Judith because he's about to invade her hometown... We see her sort of holding the sword very tentatively and, and slicing at his head. And the power is all in the general. Gentileschi puts the power back in the woman. So she's really struggling with this sword and her maid's holding the general down. And it's just so much more believable and credible. And I think when I looked at her work, and there was a, that incredible show at the National Gallery recently that really showed her true power, you start to see that there are artists that you don't know as well but are better than the artists you do know. And it, it helped me realise that these artists needed to go back in, not in a book just about women artists, but in a book about art and have their place. Mm. What about artists of colour? Well, an incredible example of that is Mary Edmonia Lewis. So she was an artist who had an African-American father, a Native American mother, they died when she was quite young. She grew up in America, enduring all kinds of prejudice, not only being black, but mixed race. And she decided she'd had enough. She 
saved money from selling sculptures that she'd made of abolitionists. So this was around the 1860s, around the time slavery was just about to be abolished. So she sold medals and sculptures of abolitionists and with the money moved to Rome. In Rome, there were there's an incredible group of American women artists who realised that, A, they had got the best marble, they uh, had the best assistants, and they were free as women to sculpt. And so Mary and Monia Lewis made some incredible sculptures uh, that were often sold back to America, and she would dutifully go back with them, but straight back to Rome. Or someone... A hundred years later, Elizabeth Catlett, who she was an African-American artist living in America created a a quite terrifying series of prints called The Black Woman that just showed the segregation that black people still faced, Mm. from being segregated on a bus to the Ku Klux Klan, and incredibly powerful. So like the artist who illustrated this book, my book, Matt Pringle, she worked in lino cut, which literally is just cutting into the flooring material we have at home. But it creates very immediate prints. Mm. And uh, yes, really powerful. So I've I've tried to put as many artists back in as I can who deserve to be there. You know, don't think I've put them back in and they're knocking out guys who were better than them. They're back in where they should have been all along. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned Rome, you've mentioned a lot of Italian artists and quite often we think of Italy and particularly sort of Renaissance Italy as just this amazing place which was bursting with creativity. Why Italy more than Spain or wherever? I think it's a legacy of art history, actually, that we think there's more art in Italy than there was in Spain. But the Renaissance was, we can't deny it, was very powerful, as much for the artists who came after the Renaissance as from the artists themselves, because the whole of Europe then looked to Italy. The reason that really the Renaissance happened in Italy was because of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire, they imported Greek sculpture, which was seen as the apogee of creating lifelike sculpture. And the Romans just copied it like crazy. And over time, these sculptures were broken or buried. And then during the Renaissance, there were a lot of excavations. So they were uncovered. So artists flocked to Italy and then made their work in Italy and therefore We see Italy as this mecca. But I think what I've enjoyed doing this book, although, you know, all the artists that you would expect to be there, Leonardo, Michelangelo, they are there. I've enjoyed exploring the art of the time that wasn't from Italy or from Greece or from Europe. So at a similar time to those artists in Africa, the Benin, people who live in Benin, which is now in southern Nigeria, they created these phenomenal plaques that we now know as the Benin Bronzes. And they uh, represented their Oba, their king, in all kinds of battles, but also trading with the Portuguese, who had, by this point, rounded West Africa and started trading networks. And I enjoyed putting this artwork... I mean, the artists from Benin had been working in bronze since the 13th century. I enjoyed putting this artwork back in the book around the time of the late Renaissance because we know it from 1897 when British forces invaded Benin and stole every damn one of these works of art and they're now all over Europe. I cover that as well in the book. It's really important to explain that. But I wanted to put them back when they were made because I I think often we see this Western history of art as being dominant and, and we can't deny it was dominant. It was is very dominant in Western art history books. But I wanted to put back in parallel narratives, I think, mm. and not put them in 
individual chapters saying this is African art or this is Chinese art, but actually put them back into the chronology of art. So you could see a comparison, really, mm. with how work is being made. It is There isn't just this classical Western way to look at things. Mm. There are other exciting ways to look at art too. And what do you think about sending artefacts back to their place of origin, particularly looted art? Yeah, I think when there's a clear case that work was stolen, personally, I think absolutely restitution is the way to go. I mean, I think Napoleon famously kind of marched all over Europe and stole everything. I mean, he shipped everything from Italy, from Spain, from the Netherlands, back to France in the early 19th century. And when he fell from grace, most of that work was returned. Mm. And it feels odd to me that work like that, that has a clear case of theft, of being stolen, rather than being traded at the time or being sold by somebody or just being discovered in a field, this was taken. I think there's a clear case for restitution and it definitely feels like museums are going that way. I mean, pieces are now being returned. What's important is that they're returned somewhere that's safe and secure for artefacts and I think that's maybe the sticking point at the moment, but I'm sure that will be resolved. Mm. What do you think about art in private hands and the prices that it fetches? So somebody paying millions for, for something that will never really be seen by more than a couple of people. It's sad, isn't it? In a way, we want it all to be on public display. I mean, luckily now, with digital resources being as they are, at least these works are captured when they come up for auction. So they exist in a digital form. But of course, as we know, there is nothing like seeing art in the flesh. Mm. And it is sad, but it's the way of the world. So much art has been lost that actually, as long as it's been well cared for, this piece of art may, even if it's in private hands, may come up for auction again. Mm. I think what's sad is that museums don't have the financial capability to step in and save these things from being cloistered away. Mm. But, you know, art has always been bought and sold and traded by very wealthy people. I think what's lovely now is that art exists at every level, as it has done for many hundreds of years. We can all have art on our walls. It might not be a new Leonardo, but it you know, will be a great, exciting artist you found at your, your local street student show or something. So I think, you know, art should be on, as long as it's on display, not if it's locked in a Swiss bank vault, that's that's less less pleasant. Yeah. I wonder if you'd pick out a couple of your favourite chapters from the book. Oh, that's like choosing a (laughs) favourite child. Um, It's really difficult. I do like the opening chapter because I love going back to the beginning where it all began. And I love the last chapter, which is called Art as Resistance. And I think I have written quite a lot about contemporary art in my career. And it was really difficult choosing who to put in the contemporary art chapter, art from the last 20 years, because I have lots of friends in the art world and there's some phenomenal artists all around the world. So I thought, right, I'm just going to look at artists who I really feel are making this huge impact. So whether it's exposing persecution in their countries like Ai Weiwei or um, Zanile Moholi in South Africa or Heather Ackroyd and Dan Harvey who are British artists who look at climate change Olafur Eliasson who made that incredible piece of 12 blocks of ice that had come off the Greenland ice sheet in response to climate change and has placed that ice watch in various squares across Europe so I wanted to really show that artists 
can make us aware of the world in this incredible way and how ever artists are working, whether they're painting small figurative paintings or making giant sculptures, it isn't the scale that matters, it's the, what they have to say, the message they have to say. Mm. So I think I'll pick that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> it's called A Little History of Art. It's by Charlotte Mullins. It's published by Yale University Press and it's on sale now. Charlotte, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Thanks also to our producer, Nora Hull, and our researcher, Georgia Bispas. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>